You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, this is Ariel Adams with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Patrick Pruneau. He is the president and CEO of two important watch brands, Ulysses Nardon and Gerard Perigo. Patrick, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Ariel. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be with you today. And, and I'm really happy to have you here. You are a very dynamic person who's responsible for two very, very important brands. And if you've heard other episodes and you sort of know me in general, I really like to talk to those watch brand CEOs and leaders that I find are important. So first of all, congratulations for being on my list of important managers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm honored. Yeah. Well, look, I think what people don't realize who look from the outside is how challenging and how diverse a position is where you have the title of president and CEO of any watch brand. Um, talk a little bit about some of the weird variety of things that you need to know and do that you would never get in one educational background. Uh, that's a very interesting question. Um, I think I mean, very often in the watch industry, I think a CEO would be your... We, we actually run business that are... Um, they are like medium-sized enterprise, but global. Meaning uh, we don't address a local market, only uh, uh, marginally. I mean, the Swiss market is an important one, especially for travel retail. But very often our brands are global. And that's something we, we have in mind permanently, I think. So, and, and we also run companies from, uh, from either large or medium-sized cities. I mean, they're in a case of Gérard Perigo and Denis Nardin, they are based in Le Locke or La Chaux-de-Fonds, who are medium-sized uh, cities in Switzerland, so by American standard, are small cities, uh, but they are, and we run that international business from there. And and the, the uh, I think the very nature of the job is fascinating, especially when you're fortunate, uh, just like me, to run businesses that are also manufacture. There is a clear industrial uh, dimension in the role. Um, that uh, we're not talking only about marketing, sales. We much more than that. I mean, actually, the, the sales and the marketing part is only uh, the, what's behind, and the most important part is really the backbone and even the soul of those brands. And the soul is the uh, watchmakers, are uh, the manufacturer, the tradition, and the different expertise we have within a year, within a uh, within a company. Just to illustrate that, I mean, for instance, that. Uh, at our brands, uh, only the, uh, the the manufacturing part, the production part, the watchmakers, we master more than 60 to 80 different expertise and, and their internally. And, and, and that know-how also is, is a very important thing to preserve and to nurture. So let me, let me, let me sort of recap this because I think what you said is very, very important. Put it in context, these are companies that simultaneously, as medium-sized companies, very rarely big companies and often considered small companies, have to contend with, on the one hand, you know, marketing and sales and staffing and, and all this stuff. And on the other hand, they're factories. And most luxury companies out there don't necessarily do both of these things with sort of this limitation of being medium-sized. And so it sounds like you have to do a lot with maybe not as much as other uh, companies and other verticals. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, our, that's, a, great, uh, that's a great recap. 
Um, yeah, I mean, and we are, especially, you know, in, in the environment, in a luxury business where some, uh, some uh, industries uh, in a luxury world do tend to outsource their production, we actually don't do that. I mean, when you're especially a very high-end uh, watchmaker like us, and very authentic. I mean, we are, we don't do that. So it, it, it adds a layer of complexity and also of challenges, but also of excitement. And the great thing is you can have under one roof, um, actually the person making the watch and on the other, on the other extreme, you would have the person who's talking to the end consumer and who's traveling to LA or who's traveling to Tokyo or, or Shanghai to sell that watch. And I think that contrast is, um, is, uh, is, uh, mind blowing. And, and very often, you know, I think of this, that's why, that's why I love this industry so much. And I think of this, uh, watch that end up in here, in the end of a consumer of a watch lover somewhere in a fancy place or in a sophisticated place or sophisticated environment. And it all started here in the Swiss Jura. And, um, and I think the year, it's great to, uh, to think about uh, what happened to this, what, what was originally maybe a piece of steel, uh, or to be, to become a watch at the end of the day and to become a, such an attractive, um, timepiece. And not only that's going to travel around the world, but also that's going to live for a long time. I mean, we are, we are also fortunate to make some, um, objects, uh, a timepiece that whose destiny could be over centuries. Yeah, it's like, ahead. imagine if Ford automobile company or motor company, like had a division where they would accept like, you know, cars from the 60s, 70s and 80s to fix them. Like the watch industry has to have this capability, but almost every other manufacturing company would never even think to do something like this. Great analogy. It's, it's exactly the case. And not only we would, have, not only obviously we would repair uh, those watches that, that were made long ago, but also we would also, when we design the watch, when we build it, we make it in such a way that we believe it's going to be around for a long time. So it's, it's like we, we see that almost like a dual responsibility. And it's, I'm sure it's something we're going to talk about later on, but, uh, and uh, it's also a reason why I believe a, a watch is probably one of the most sustainable luxury product ever. Um, because by definition, it's here to stay. Yeah, I mean, that's funny because today in the world, obviously, everything related to environmentalism is is very, very trendy, um, uh, including climate change and everything related to that. And so a lot of companies want to, you know, say, hey, we're, we're not one of the bad guys, we're one of the good guys. But the reality is the watch industry, whatever you want to say about it, is actually a very low carbon impact type of industry to begin with. It doesn't use a lot of heavy machinery. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't waste a lot. It's actually quite efficient. It's always sort of been the type of company that now today other companies want to be like. Am I right? Correct. Correct. I mean, um, we take pride here, for instance, uh, with the two companies and, and this not in particular for which sustainability is such an important pillar, but we take pride in not only manufacturing, making uh, 95% of our movement, but on top of that, whenever we source something, I mean, we have to source either some component we don't make or some cases sometimes or et cetera. We sold, we source them locally. And when I say locally, we're talking a couple of dozen kilometers away uh, from our production site. Yeah, um, local means different things to different people, yeah, right? Exactly. I mean, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, imagine by, uh, by like some larger, large country like the US, uh, local would mean you'd almost 
produce everything in the same city if you think like there is a radius of uh, 50 miles <laughs> um, um, which is which is our case so it's 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 dramatically uh, sustainable plus on top of that we're making product that uh, that needs limited maintenance and that encapsulate a lot of um, a lot of technology in a in a product that doesn't need energy later on except you moving your 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 hub Oh, that okay. So that that's that's a whole other discussion of sort of the, the the viability of this old machinery today that we that we love. But I want to ask something that I think is particularly interesting to someone such as yourself, who especially has worked in other industries and has sort of a, a a wider frame of reference in the watch industry. Consumers tend to be kind of obsessed as to where things are made. Right? It's not how well it works. It's not how nice it is. It's also where it was made and who it was made by. Um, does this frustrate managers or is it something you sort of just accept as part of the business that the consumer is, is hyper-focused on um, parts or origin in addition to quality? Mm. Um, it's an interesting point. You're right. I mean, there is that obsession about the the origin of of, uh, of the the timepiece and how it's made. But actually, you know what? I think the most important part is the consumer want to understand the uh, the the craftsmanship and they want to understand who's been working on the watch and how it's been done uh, and I think the, it's it's probably the reason why they have to visualize almost where it came from and here I mean uh, as I said I mean we are we probably based in uh, in some uh, small cities in uh, Swiss Jura and we also make everything possible to invite uh, some of our consumers to visit our manufacturer we want to have that emotional direct connection with the end consumer and uh, and and we believe uh, we don't want to go into that race of where it's made and why and, and on top of that we are as, as i said before i mean everything is, is super local but more importantly i think it's about um, that emotional connection and the understanding of how this unique product is made and i think that's probably the most important part I want to mention something about that because you're, you're, of course, completely correct. And anyone who has been to a watch manufacturer knows about this magic that happens. You go there and you see how they do things and you see the men and the women that assemble the watches and decorate them and everything like that. And all of a sudden you want one. Like You, you may have been ambivalent in the beginning, but when you leave that place, you're like, maybe I can't buy one today, but I now intend to own one of these beautiful products. Um, that's a very powerful experience. Does that happen in other industries or is that unique to this very special slice of luxury? This is clearly super strong here. I mean, I, I often refer to that. We never had any question about the price of our timepieces after someone has visited the, the, the workshop. That's, exactly, a very, exactly. that's a very basic one because suddenly you understand. I mean, everyone could very easily understand the, uh, the value of it and what's behind uh, what's I mean, uh, all of what uh, the expertise that are in, encapsulated and the work, etc. And if for some reason you come during winter, you understand also the environment. I mean, you have to think. Sometimes it's uh, it's like uh, producing a watch in uh, in a mountains, like if you were in Wyoming or if you were in Colorado. Um, yeah. So, um, <laughs> but uh, does it happen in other industries? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, I I'm sure our our um, Sister company Brioni that makes uh, some of the best suits in the world that manufacture them in Italy. I'm sure if you visit their workshop, I'm sure you would feel the same. So let's talk a little bit about that. The brands that you you run, Girard Perigo and Yves Saint uh, are part of the Caring Group, and they were acquired. These are old Swiss brands that have 
interesting histories and have done a bunch of interesting stuff. Let me ask you a question. What is it that Caring saw in these in these companies? It owns a couple of luxury brands. Uh, you know, uh, Gucci is probably you know one of the most famous ones. What what did they see in these brands? What was their interest? Why these watch companies? Well, I guess I mean first I wasn't there when the acquisition was made, but uh, but I guess the uh, they saw the uh, uh, the authenticity of the two brands and their strengths. I mean both brands um, have a very long history. Uh, Gerard Prego was born in seven in uh, in 1791. Um, uh, Elise Nardin is now celebrating his 175th anniversary this year. So you see, I mean, we have more than 400 years of combined history between the two brands. And probably, I imagine, caring so that the, the brands have so much history, so much know-how, expertise in making watches, some icons, also iconic watches like the Three Bridges uh, with uh, G.R. Prego or the Freak for the Foyles Nardin, plus a lot of stories and history um, behind it. And I'm sure the group saw that it, it would make a lot of sense to like help those brands to grow and to develop, and they uh, they could um, they could meet their larger number of consumers and uh, and come to the world in a different way, probably and be accelerated. Interesting, interesting. Now let's talk a little bit about how you got into this position. There's no school, as we know, that trains people to be watch brand CEOs, let alone watch brand managers. I, for one, would like for there to be a school in Switzerland to teach you know people to do this, in addition to being watchmakers. But talk a little bit about your background and and how you 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 ended up in the position of you know not just running one watch brand but two of them. So I. Previous to that, I was working for Apple. Um, I spent uh, quite some time in Cupertino, uh, where I was part of the, the team that launched the, uh, the, the Apple Watch uh, from a marketing and a sales point of view, uh, which was a super exciting role. And then I moved to the UK, also for Apple, looking at the, uh, the, the UK uh, market for all type of products. And um, um, that was super exciting. But then uh, one day I was offered the opportunity to meet the caring teams and, uh, and, uh, and this owner, Mr. Pino in particular, that was extremely inspiring. And, uh, and when uh, they mentioned Ulis Narda as a brand, I thought that's really interesting. I thought um, it, it's for me that brand is a little bit of a best kept secret. Um, it was, it's definitely known by the watch collectors and many watch collectors would have a freak, uh, in their portfolio. But on the other hand, I saw there would be a lot of things to be done. It was like almost the, uh, the perfect, the perfect brand, um, uh, amazing expertise, technically, uh, great story, uh, strong teams, a lot of passion. And, and a, a lot of cool secrets, especially since, of, since, uh, since the 1980s. Exactly. A lot of cool secrets and probably an opportunity to talk a little bit more about the secrets or at least participate or continue the adventure of Ulis Nala. Um, and I, I saw that would be very interesting. So that was in 2017. And a year later, um, I was offered the opportunity to, um, to lead also GR Perigo, um, which is another fascinating brand. Um, in uh, in La Chaux-de-Fonds, thanks, thankfully the two brands' uh, headquarters are only a couple of miles away, one from another, so I don't have to run from one side of Switzerland to the other. Um, but I, I saw that that was a great challenge. But, but that's a little bit my background. And before that, before Apple, I was already in the watch industry. I worked for uh, Tiger 
And before that, I was in a wine and spirit business, etc. I've done different things in different countries. I live in the U.S. also for for many years. Now, thank you for that. That's that's interesting, and I'm sure that helps people understand, you know, some of the educational background and experiences that that lead to this point. Apple, um, you know, is a company that that does not always have a a wonderful connotation in in watchmaking country. It is seen as a as a disruptor, um, and and I, and I was I imagine that. Depending on the audience you were with, you might have been seen as very exotic and special because you had this time at Apple. Or alternatively, you know, you're 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 part of the enemy, helping the smartwatches. Da 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 da. I, I'm sure you have stories about both of these experiences. <laughs> yeah, I, I tell you a funny story. When I left or my when I I left my previous company and uh, to move to Apple, so I was in the more traditional watch business. To move to Apple, I call cover of people to say. Great working with you. I mean, I'm, I'm not talking internally, externally. Some other, some CEOs, etc. I said, great working right. with you. And it's interesting. Because most of them said, oh, you're changing industry. And I was like, uh, actually, not really. And there was one person <laughs> in particular. And yeah, I, there was one person in particular that, that understood that it was not the case. But it was the feeling in 2014. It's interesting. Apple was about to launch or there were rumors. Apple yeah. was about to launch the Apple Watch, but the uh, the Swiss watch industry was like, mm, this is this is completely different. Actually, it's no difference. I mean, for uh, for for me, from day one, I always thought the Apple Watch wouldn't be a threat to the watch industry. I, it just anyway, it was just another product coming. But yes, there is also we only have two arms, and we also fighting for that piece of real estate which is called a wrist. And the left one in particular, and um, and yeah, there are some sort of competition. But on the other hand, I definitely believe the Apple Watch um, is not a threat to a watch industry, but is more an opportunity to bring more people to wear a watch again or create excitement. I think it's now down to us brands. Um, that's what we do at Ulysse Narda and GR Prego to think: Hey, what am I proposing to the consumer? So the consumer is attracted. Uh, to come to my timepieces or to my watches, and I think it's it's probably our role as the as the industry overall. And and I have a deep faith in the in the potential of uh, growth that the uh, that the watch industry, luxury watch industry, has, regardless of the number of Apple Watch or the smart watches that are being sold every year. I again, thank you so much for that that response. I uh, you know you've read my work. Uh, you know that I agree with you. I was really the only watch journalist to celebrate the sort of inclusion of the smartwatch. I was the only one to basically talk positively about the Apple Watch when it first came out. And I, I knew what would happen, and it's happening today. And here's what I thought would happen. Here's what's happening. First is what I call the, the 10% time. I think that people in the future are going to be wearing smartwatches primarily because they're useful tools, but you get fatigue, you get screen fatigue, you get notification fatigue, but you're used to wearing something on your wrist. You and me probably, if we leave the house without something on our wrist, we feel naked. And so what's going to happen is people want to have something on their wrist, but they don't want to wear a smartwatch. And because they're used to wearing a watch, they're going to want to wear a nice watch. So that's one thing I'm noticing. And then the second thing I'm noticing is people that wear both. They recognize that one is an information and health 
yourself in whatever device. And the other one tells people about who you are. And a perfect example is today I went to go visit um, a friend of mine here in LA that sells watches. And this person has in their office a very enviable collection of watches at all, all price ranges, into the millions, all kinds of crazy stuff. And him and everyone in his office wears a very fancy timepiece on one wrist. He had a Roger de Bouterbillon on one wrist. And then the other wrist, an Apple Watch. And this represented everyone in the office. And I said, this is exactly what's happening. These people all agree that this Apple Watch gives them something they want every single day, but it's not enough to not wear the traditional watch. And I think that that is, again, what we're seeing more and more of. We didn't see it at first, but you know, if, if, if only people had a little bit of vision, they'd recognize that we would get to this point. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, uh, um, but that's why we, we have to explain, uh, we really have to spend explaining why our, um, a luxury traditional watch makes a lot of sense. And also in a world where there is, there is a risk of not being differentiated, not being yourself enough, I think a luxury watch, I think if you wear an Ernestin Blast, for instance, you say a lot about who you are. Hold, hold on. Hold on. Do we have to explain why a good meal makes sense? Do we have to explain why a good drink or a good hotel or a nice car makes sense? If we we agree that watches are something that you wear, why does the world have to explain the the reason for the nice version of it? We naturally want that, don't we? Yes, absolutely. On the other hand, look, um, it's a good example you're taking. I mean, when you go to a good restaurant now, I mean, you see very often that the, uh, there is a nice glass window where you can see the cook cooking. And then you see the, uh, that almost art taking place uh, um, behind that window, behind that. Uh, that. And, and, and I think it's exactly uh, what we're doing when we're explaining or inviting our consumer to come over to our manufacturer. But you're right. You don't have to explain a piece of art. I mean, everyone can enjoy a nice Van Gogh even knowing uh, the very detail of the uh, of the colors or the uh, the structure of the painting, but it's also interesting to do both. So, but you're right. I mean, first, I think we have to let everyone just appreciate the uh, the beauty of it. And 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 it's interesting the uh, the analogy with art or with cooking, which is uh, very good cooking, is for me close to art. Um, it's very interesting because you're you're you actually. Um, get inspired by uh, you 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 grow you, there is like a learning curve as well you, there are just so many dimensions to uh, to enjoying um, to enjoying something and when you look at a watch you see immediately whether it's balanced whether it's neat whether it is it is nice or not and then it's down to anyone everyone to get to know more about it what's behind what's the movement etc does it sometimes frustrate you when there is a part of the market that wants to see a watch as a financial asset versus what I think it's supposed to be, which is a wearable item, which is supposed to make you feel good and say something about the individual person you are. I know that this is a whole bigger discussion, but it frustrates me. It frustrates a lot of people that there's so much of this as part of the conversation. I feel that it really misses the point of why people enjoy timepieces. Fully agree. I think it, it, uh, you cannot, obviously, you cannot limit that. You cannot, uh, but I, I, I fully agree. It's like, it's missing the point. It's like buying a bottle of wine and keeping it forever and just waiting for the price to go up and selling it. No, the, it, I personally don't hate the purpose. The purpose is buying a nice bottle of wine and opening it and drinking it. And, yeah. uh, and, and it's exactly the same. So I think 
Um, I think here uh, for Borussia Pegolis Nana, we really, um, we obviously, we know the value of what we make, of the timepieces we make. But the best thing ever is whenever I see the watches being worn. And when they're being worn and they're being maintained, they're alive. I mean, really, I mean, those timepieces have to be alive. And the desire is much more important for me than here, than really the financial investment. And it's, it's probably a, sometime a little bit of a risk to the industry if we all believe uh, the world must be driven by that uh, financial um, uh, that financial interest for the year, for the timepieces. I personally have a very different view. It's funny how social media sentiment, things that happen that are trendy, things that really have nothing to do with the watch world can have such an impact on consumer preferences, even if the reasons why people like watches to begin with are so separated. It, it's, it's kind of humbling, but at the same time, it sort of makes me appreciate that the watch industry could have a little bit more of a better relationship. Because I think what ends up happening is they allow Instagram, for example, to dictate how the world perceives watches. And I'm not sure that that's the best thing in the world for the watch industry. Probably not. Probably not. Um, I would agree with that. I think it's a, it's a, there is much more than that. But we, again, I mean, we, are, we should be very clear. I mean, in, in, even in our own social media to make sure that we, are, that we go much beyond that. That we are, that we probably the feeling, the emotion we give to the end consumer, even through social media, is much more than just saying, "Hey, you're making good investment." What does your gut instinct tell you is the right way to use what they call modern media? You know, people are learning about watches and brands online first before they see them in the real world. People are making decisions to purchase products sometimes before they see them, oftentimes online. And then, yes, oftentimes they will maybe make a final decision or the purchase in real life. But so much of the the, the desire creation experience is happening online without a lot of the traditional opportunities to see and touch and things like that. What does your gut instinct tell you is sort of a good strategy for brands like Ulysses Nardon and Gerard Perigo to uh, adapt to these changing times? Well, I think mixing the two, for sure. I mean, the, uh, the social media is, a, is, a, is an amazing opportunity to explain a lot of the things we do. I mean, let's, let's face it. And, and we can do it and have a very... Um, and a very open discussion immediately with our potential and consumer or to, to watch lovers and even the one that are not consumer, only having a conversation with people that have an interest in watches. And I'm not only talking about collectors. I'm actually right. also very excited when I see people coming to us and almost discovering the watch industry. And that's what we're here for. I mean, we're also here to be welcoming. I mean, I, I really see the two brands as being uh, maybe for people in the know, but also being also very inclusive. I think we should be inclusive. We should be welcoming, um, welcoming, uh, people that have an interest in nice objects in, in a lifestyle. So I think social media helps us to do that. And after that, it's also a job we have to do with the, uh, I would say the physical part of the job to say, to explain when you hold the watch. What's happening? What's the feeling? What is the sensation you're going to have? You know, um, a luxury product always carry a lot of emotion. But a watch, like a jewelry, is also different because it touches your skin. It touches your body. So uh, the, uh, I think the, the touch and feel, uh, to take uh, the expression, is so, is so important. 
it matters a lot to make sure that our consumer will have the opportunity or to, to get in contact with the product and feel. I mean, we're spending time for us working on a strap, the uh, the sensation of the strap. It's not only the uh, the visual, how you're going to display, the uh, how it's going to be displayed, what's the look of it. It goes much beyond that. And, and same on the uh, same on the cases. When we work on a case, we all obviously think about, hey, how is it going to look, but how is it going to feel? And same on the size. You know, right. what's fascinating in this industry is like, for instance, when you talk about the size of a watch, like we're talking a millimeter. I mean, we're really talking a millimeter. And like changing the case of a watch of a millimeter <laughs> is a major decision. Can know, you believe it? It's like, it's insane. Yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> a little angle, a little polish. Yes, exactly. It's such a big deal. Yeah. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blogged Watch Store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the Blog to Watch store. Right now, the Blog to Watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blog to Watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow in the dark face. The Blog to Watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the Blog to Watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now, and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. Okay, so let's let's again change topics again because I I love you know, showing people the types of things that a CEO has to think about. Another major topic these days I love your opinion on is this, you know, question about direct-to-consumer. And and just to give people some context, traditionally watch brands produced watches and then sold them into distribution where independent watch retailers would then go on and, and sell them to what they call end consumers. Today, there's a lot of blending where some brands are selling direct-to-consumers, having their own stores, blending a third-party model with with direct-to-consumer sales, doing just one way or another. And I'm not saying there's right or wrong ways, but I still mostly believe that it's the best to have a third-party retailer. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. But how do you as a CEO navigate and juggle all the different people telling you all the different types of things? Um, and and, and you, know, you, you want to, of course, make the most amount of money, but you know that you actually have to have partners that care to help push you. And, and there's just all these considerations. How do you process all this? Yeah, I, I, actually, our philosophy is pretty simple. We strongly believe in multi-brand retail. Uh, we absolutely believe it's, it's like, uh, for us, the cornerstone of the, of the, of the brand, uh, development and also the conversation to the end consumer. So for me, okay. D2C, uh, well, it's not D2C. It's probably, uh, it's communication to the end consumer and it goes through social media and it also goes a lot through the, uh, the, uh, multi-brand retailer. Let, right. Let's spend, let's spend a minute on this. Um, it's, what I just mentioned is um, is an approach. Uh, it's, a, it's a strategy we've taken a couple of years ago, and we are we haven't changed our our views at all. I I know the uh, well. Listen, in a couple of years, I think the um, the uh, landscape of watch retailers has changed uh, very significantly. Um, in US, in in USA, is probably one of the country where it has changed. Um, 
the we've seen some uh, top retailers, multi-brand retailers, investing significantly uh, on their on their stores in a training of their staff, and really, uh, I mean, really, uh, uh, can I say, uh, upping their game? I mean, really, uh, uh, raising their game when it comes to the experience for the end consumer, and it's true for independent retailers in different parts of the U.S. And it's also true for a couple of, um, of uh, retail chains that are also highly qualitative. And, and the same is happening in the rest of the world. Yes, uh, through the different crises, some of the watch retailers have suffered. But what is that it has brought also, it has brought a, a very fresh view on how to retail watches, how to explain watches to the end consumer, and uh, how to best support the brand. And I know some brands have a different view. They want to talk directly to the end consumer. They want to go direct at all costs. We have a very different approach. And actually, we work hand in hand uh, with our top retailers and with a lot of retailers, even to the extent where we share ideas in advance. We are, we also are, use them um, uh, to uh, to share, yeah, to not only share ideas, but also to um, introduce our novelties and uh, what we have in mind, how we want to approach the market. That feeling of partnership, I, I think, had never been as strong. And we probably, as a brand, one of the most collaborative brands in the market when it comes to this. I just saw this firsthand myself um, where I was with, you know, Francois Xavier, who runs uh, Ulysses Ardan America for you. And uh, I, I was there in, in New York in, in Montauk where he and your retailer watchers of Switzerland were participating in a, a sales event. It was also a training. And a couple of the salespeople from Watchers of Switzerland, which is a, a, a multi-brand uh, watch retailer, which is a, a expanding its presence in America, as, as you mentioned, um, you know, send out some of its people who are learning. They're, they're learning about the product. They're hearing from the people at the brand. Um, they're having the experience. And then they take that information and they use that when they speak to their own clients and things like that. And that is that is the type of training that you're talking about. And it's it's easy to say training, but I think it's actually more interesting to talk about like what does that actually mean? And in a multi-store environment, how how do you create a relationship between yourself and the salesperson so that they can convey that relationship to the consumer? That's that's a lot of hard work, and it takes it takes truly dedicated people that that you uh, you know for, uh, you know complimenting you uh, are able to surround yourself with. Yeah, the year. I think the the passion and the knowledge is probably the most important part in this. I mean, uh, for us internally, I mean, within our own teams, but then also we have to convey uh, that knowledge and our passion to the uh, to the uh, retailers and to their teams. But uh, but it, it's happening. I mean, there is an appetite for product knowledge uh, from passionate teams of retailers um, all over the world, which is my mind blowing. It's really really impressive what's happening now. We see, uh, we see a lot of staff that are super passionate. They're able to explain the difference between one timepiece and another, one brand and another, and without discounting any. It's really, I mean, let me explain, um, let me explain you, Mr. Client, are what does that brand or that wash mean and what's behind it. And, uh, and I see it like more and more, and we've seen a radical shift in terms of um, uh, in terms of behavior, from being a salesman, let's say a trader, to a specialist, a specialized advisor uh, at the point of sales level. And by the way, that was necessary. I mean, th- that was clearly necessary. Um, it was it was I think needed to help support the brand. 
And that's why I have so much faith in the future of the multi-brand retail, especially when they're located in great locations. Look, I think that what ends up happening is we see this cycle in the watch industry. And it's actually kind of tragic. And, and what happens is a, a retailer finds a product that they can grow in their market. Something about the design or the price point, whatever, really works with the people they sell to. And they're able to grow a strong market for the brand and they're making money. And then the brand is like, oh, you're making too much money. We're going to do it ourselves. And then the brand takes over that distribution or somehow limits that retailer from growing anymore. And then the performance goes down because they're not putting the same effort into the market growth that that, that retailer was doing. So the cycle of some third party building and then the brand taking away from them and then it deflating because they're not putting the same energy into it happens again and again and again. And I, I'd like to think that there is opportunities to have more relationships with retailers where they can build the market and then the, and the brand has less incentive to feel like they need to pull away, but can rather support that partner so they can grow together. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, it goes even beyond the retailers of the multi-brand. It's also the different brands. I think uh, we have to think of it as an ecosystem. And let's say if in a given point of sale, um, there is an offer of, let's say, uh, eight or 12 brands. Um, for sure, some brands drive more volume. And some brands are luxury, but they also produce hundreds of thousands of watches per year. Great. But then also, once you bought this, you also want to discover some other brands, other timepieces that will be a little bit more exclusive. And then the, the role of the sales people now in, inside, the, uh, inside the store is to obviously um, help um, individuals to educate themselves. And that's why you see so many uh, retailers uh, smart investing on the education of their of the client or and helping the client to uh, to discover new things and the appetite is is like it's tremendous i can see it i mean people come to us i mean people really come to us say okay i want to discover your brand or i want to discover the freak or i want to discover the free bridge what's behind it what the story etc and i think that's the best thing that could happen i mean you really you know i mean between ulistana and jiapego we rarely you first watch I mean, very, it's very rare. I mean, you're, you come to those brands because there's been an education process. Either you did it on your own, either you did it with the help of someone. It could be a friend, it could be, your, it could be someone you respect, or it could be also staff in a store. And the stores are becoming more and more places of education and experience. Yeah, so again, the, the concept, just to recap for everyone, is there's a lot of watches that are not your first luxury watch. You buy what we might call a gateway luxury watch or a gateway luxury brand, which could be something you know inexpensive like a you know like a, a Tissot or something more mainstream like a Rolex. And then once you've had a taste for wearing a nice watch, you want to get things which are more distinctive and in- interesting. And that's where you sort of your path leads you to. Are you listen Ardon or a Gerard Perigo? Correct, and you you can see that even with smartwatches. I mean, I've seen, I've, I've, I've know some very concrete example of people that went to, that were not used to a watch any longer, or never worn one. I mean, some are in their mid twenties, and they they started wearing a smartwatch, and from a smartwatch, they thought, oh, that's cool. But actually, you know what? Ninety percent of the function on my smartwatch are available on my phone, so maybe I can try to differentiate a little bit more myself from others, and not only with the uh, different color of strap. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) No, it's exactly what I said before, because when you don't have a watch on your wrist, 
you don't feel the sensation of needing something there. But when you become a watch person and a smartwatch is that, you feel naked if you leave the house without something on that place. That's right. That's right. I've seen, and actually I've seen also people telling me, hey, since I'm wearing my watch, like I'm wearing my Loretto from Giaprego, I also, people are, some people are looking at me in a different way. They're not only looking, I mean, the easy way, uh, obviously, the, uh, to this conversation is like, okay, it's a social status. Basically, they see you've been able to put so much money on a watch. But actually, there is much more than that. It's like, a you know something or you have an interest in something. And it's a lot more subtle. And that's probably what the need was today. I, I agree. We, I know you only have a few more minutes, so what I want to talk about is some products right now and some things you've been working on um, you know, uh, for, for the brands that are going to be coming out soon. But before to sort of enter that topic, I want you to explain how you make or, or help decide what products to make. You know, Unlike companies that produce uh, tools that are still being innovative and things like that, like that the sort of world needs for industrial purposes, there isn't a clear direction with a luxury brand of what to make next. You know, you're not necessarily improving on timekeeping. And if you are, that's not because there's the market demands it. You're, you're just trying to make something interesting and that's desirable. How do you figure out what direction to go in? You know, it's, it seems like an open sandbox that the, <laughs> the variety could be tormenting. What do I do? What products do I focus on? Do I go up in price? Do I go down in price? Do I make more complicated? Like so many directions you could go in. How do you make any decisions? What a great question. Um, the, uh, the real, uh, I think, um, uh, first we believe we can still bring a massive amount of innovation already on our existing product. You know, earlier I mentioned that one millimeter that makes the whole difference. Well, actually oh, yeah. our world is this, I mean, you can take a watch today. You can think, Hey, it's absolutely perfect. And you know what? I'm going to make it even more perfect. But to gain those extra percentage of perfection, I will have to work. We will have to work hard. We'll have to work for for months and years. And yep. then, and obviously, we ask ourselves the question on the movement. I mean, the year, for instance, on, on to this now, then the use of silicium is a is a major asset, and we're still working on how we can improve even the the way the work uh, the watch work on the reliability, but also on you know. A thing that is almost never discussed in the watch industry, but it's about the ergonomy. I mean, how uh, the readability, the ergonomy of a watch, uh, the material we're using, the lightness, uh, there are just so many aspects. And for us, we have a very clear uh, direction. I mean, for instance, um, at, uh, at GRPGO, it's extremely clear uh, where we want to take the brand. I mean, the, uh, the hero product is the Loretto, the icon is the Street Bridges. So what the, and the distributors um, has to remain an icon, but then how can we bring um, a slightly more modern version of the icon? So uh, let me illustrate that. As three bridges, we launch uh, three bridges in, uh, in Sapphire, Sapphire case. So you're, you're actually uh, using um, a movement. It's, it's really cool, by the way. This is Gerard Perigo. For everyone that wasn't clear, this is through Gerard Perigo. Yeah, Gerard Perigo, I really encourage you to have a look at the, uh, the three bridges Kazar. Um, and this one is really, uh, it, it's, it's just amazing timepiece. And, and you could see all the heritage of the watch and you, we brought it in a, in a, in a case or with a look, which is quite contemporary while respecting the tradition. 
And, and, and this watch, for instance, when it's developed, you know, it takes a lot of attention. This is a lot of time of R&D first, and then, and then the manufacturing is extremely complex. Producing a case in Sapphire is super complex. Producing a bridge in Sapphire is even more complex, et cetera, et cetera. So it takes a lot of our time. But, um, but regarding the strategy, it's very clear, and we are on that ongoing quest of excellence. Okay, that 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 makes sense. Again, it's it's it doesn't tell the whole story, but it helps understand sort of the direction you go in. And I think what it, what I hear is emotions. You need to be presented with options, and you need to ask yourself what emotions you want to present right now. And sometimes it's a it's an affordable emotion. Sometimes it's a very exclusive and and extravagant emotion. And you know, you 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 take those things that you want to promote, and you make sure that it has the right emotion. And that's that's like a conductor. You know, that's not a that's not a finance question. That's not a, a strategic question. That is a conductor tasting the air and making an artistic decision, isn't it? Correct. And, and if I want to be, you're, you're right. It's only part of the answer I gave you. But for instance, a brand like Ulysse Narda, um, uh, it's actually, there is a sense of opulence in a, in a watch, meaning you have, there is a lot of watch into it. I mean, in every watch, there is a lot. But then it shouldn't be, uh, so our, our guidelines, like, how do we enrich this offer? But on the other hand, we are, there is that opulence, there is that uh, technicality, it's always very technical and, you know, and innovative. But on the other hand, it's also, it has to make sense. I mean, there is nothing that's for free. We don't make, um, uh, we don't add bells and whistle only for the, uh, for the sake of it. There, there has to be not only a very uh, strong aesthetic balance between the technical part and the uh, and the aesthetic, but also it's um it, it has to be uh, it has to communicate the values of the uh, of the brand immediately. So when you look at the watch, we have to you have to think, hey, this is great, and it is. Um, I think it's fair, and nothing is for. I mean, the the, the designer or the watchmakers haven't done anything just for. Uh, uh, trying to add some value that uh, that doesn't bring value really. So there is always behind it uh, some sort of fairness to the end consumer and authenticity. Does that is that a better answer? No, it's good. I mean, again, <laughs> this is, we could spend we could spend hours talking yeah, about absolutely. just this question. You know, books could be written about this. I just when consumers see new releases, I think sometimes they're mystified. They're like, okay, that's cool. Why did you come out with this? And they don't understand what's going on in your mind and some of the practical realities as well as the, you know, the the these design sessions where you look at something on a wall and you're like, okay, everyone, we got to make it more opulent. Any suggestions? Like, it's hard work. You said one important word earlier. You say why. Uh, and if we do our job well, no one will ask why. Because when you see the uh, timepiece, you understand the, uh, the why behind it, which is actually the whole purpose of making a luxury product. So, you know, it's a, a much more philosophical question. Why do you make a luxury product? And, and there is a lot more than just, it's not about price. It's not about a, a strategy as a company. It's like because the, 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 uh, the value it brings to us as human beings and the, uh, the, uh, the happiness it can, it can give all of us. It's, it's really, um, I think the why of, of a brand like, let's say, Lisnada is really because I like the technicality, the exploration with a strong touch of craftsmanship and, and with the back of a lot of expertise in watchmaking.
So you've opened up a wonderful can of worms for potential new fans because now they're going to start looking at the history uh, of, the, of the watches and the catalogs, and they're going to see some incredible things from both Gerard Perigo and Neil Sardin, and they're going to ask why, why this freak in all silicon, why the jackpot tourbillon, you know, why this, this uh, opera watch. There are some amazing stories that are begging for the question why. Patrick, you and I will have to tell some more of those stories, but before we go, talk about some of the latest products and things like that so that when someone goes to look um, at the latest things from the two brands, sure. they'll, they'll know what to search for. Sure. So at Ulysse Nardin, we just uh, introduced last week in Geneva um, uh, actually a, a capsule collection, which is very interesting. Uh, uh, Ulysse Nardin originally uh, grew and uh, acquired uh, and a very strong expertise or and quasi a leadership in marine instruments and the manufacturing uh, uh, marine chronometers, uh, deck chronometers for uh, for ships over... It's over like a big part of the brand's history. It big is part of the super history. strong. Uh, I mean, the the brand has supplied more than 50 navies around the world, uh, including the U.S. Navy or, uh, for several decades, etc., with super reliable product. And just to give an example at the time, uh, sometime the uh, marine chronometer sometime was cost a third of the price of a, of, of the shipyard. Um, and, the, and the smallest uh, mistake when it comes to the, the timing on board could generate, could lead to some, uh, to some uh, disasters. And, uh, and people were lost at sea because they didn't have the right instruments. Anyway, yeah, it was, it was long... as complicated as the engine. Absolutely. So anyway, to make a long story short, um, over the last couple of years, we really talk about the uh, uh, the, uh, the contemporary, and when I say contemporary, there is even a tradition of contemporary um, because the freak is 20 years old. But we are talking a lot about the contemporary side of the brand, and um, and now we introduce some capsule collection. And I would say capsule is a good word because I think the um, the chronometry collection to celebrate the 175th anniversary as the design of the uh, marine chronometers um, and uh, it's come from the uh, the top year collection and brings a lot of the uh, expertise of the brand there are enamel dies i mean uh, i you know we are one of the very few makers of enamel dies and i yep. encourage everyone to yep. have a look at what an enamel dial is and how it's made it's uh, it's uh, it's very impressive and very complex uh, some great tourbillon watches we have um, we also have a moon phase, so we have that capsule collection, which is great. And at Giarpego, so at Giarpego, um, so we are we celebrating now the uh, the the Loreto in particular um, with the uh, with a great uh, TI two hundred thirty. So it's a it's a limited edition um, absolute Loreto, so the most sporty uh, Loreto. Uh, that comes in two colors and, uh, and the limited edition, which is uh, in blue and in gray. And it's, uh, again, uh, celebrating our, our expertise with the Loretto, but in a more sporty look. And, uh, and you're going to love that. Patrick, thank you so much. Um, everyone, I've been speaking to Mr. Patrick Pernod, the president and CEO of Ulysses Nardon and Gerard Perrigo. You can go to their respective websites to see the new stuff. You can go to blogtowatch.com to see all the latest stuff. Patrick, thank you so much, and we'll talk to you next time. Okay. Thanks, Aya. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, 
please email the show at superlative at a blog to watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit a blog to watch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe?